Are you looking for a Christ-centered, cross-focused church? Check out the new Find a Church page at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Find a Church. Are you tired of worship that's more about self-help than the Savior, the Christian rather than the Christ, and the Christ in you instead of Christ for you? It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. Find a church near you. Issuesetc.org. Click Find a Church. In the year 367, the Archbishop of Alexandria, who was trying to consolidate all Christians in Egypt under his authority, sent a letter out at Easter and told the monks to destroy all the illegitimate secret books that they had. And he said, you can keep 27, but destroy all the rest. And it's very interesting that that 27 is the first list we have of what we call the New Testament collection. There are 27 books. And apparently the monks took all these other books, over 50, and hid them in a, in a huge jar and buried them. This is, of course, contrary to the archbishop's order. But that is what saved these texts so that we now can begin to read a completely different side of early Christianity. That's Elaine Pagels, author of the book The Gnostic Gospels. Now, she contends that there was this free-for-all in early Christianity, not only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but all sorts of Gospels floating around, and that they're all held in kind of equal esteem until the magisterium of the church cracked down and ordered the destruction of these deviant Gospels, it was deemed. And that's why we end up with what we have in the New Testament. Is that true? Was it a bureaucratic decision to destroy these secret or considered dangerous alternative to the canonical Gospels? And how do these ancient documents, like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Peter, Secret Gospel of Mark, and there are many others, how do they fit into the days of early Christianity? I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Thanks for tuning us in. For the remainder of this hour, we begin a three-part weekly series on how modern scholarship distorts the Gospels. Today, the best sources for understanding the real Jesus. Dr. Craig Evans joins us. You can join us as well. one eight seven seven six two three my ie 877-623-6943. Our in-studio email address, talkback at issuesetc.org. And if you're following us at Twitter, you can Twitter us a question or a comment at Issues ETC. Dr. Craig Evans is Professor of New Testament and Director of the Graduate Program at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, Canada. He's author of the book, Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels. Dr. Evans, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. It really can be disturbing for the average layperson to discover that there were these ancient documents, some of them dating very, very early, Gospel of Thomas, Judas, Peter, Secret, Secret Gospel of Mark, and many others, that were floating around in early Christendom. And Elaine Pagel says, well, they were there, they were perfectly legitimate, they were alternate forms of the faith, explanations, until the bureaucratic powers that be in the Church cracked down and had them hidden or destroyed. Is that how these ancient documents really fit into early Christendom? Not exactly, in my opinion. I mean, I heard uh, the quotation uh, that you played a few minutes ago, what she said. I mean, it's mostly factual. I think it's the inference that's drawn from it that uh, concerns me. Uh, the documents that were hidden uh, in Nagamati, the 50 or so documents that were hidden, 
uh, instead of being burned as the as the decree uh, gave or ordered. Um, those documents date from at the earliest the second century. Uh, some of them date from the third century. And these documents were not floating around when the 27 or the New Testament writings were written. And I'll confine my remarks mostly to the Gospels, because that's what it's all about. And uh, the book uh, that you're referring to has to do with Jesus. And the whole question has to do with, well, what are the earliest and best sources for the historical Jesus? So I'll talk about the Gospels. And so these Nagamati writings, the earliest one that... uh, uh, is of interest to scholars is the Gospel of Thomas, and it is in the Nagamati collection. We also found a few Greek fragments of it as well elsewhere in the dry sands of Egypt. But uh, this document really doesn't date earlier than the second century, so that's the oldest one. So the idea that there were just a whole bunch of writings floating around and Christians were reading all of them and uh, nobody really knew what was the best until some bishop comes along and issues a decree, there's a little bit of a distortion to that. Um, sure, Christians read different things. Christians today read different things. Uh, you know, you read, you read uh, the Bible, you read other books. But uh, what was going on then was that the boundaries of the Bible were not clearly recognized in all churches in the second century and later. And so some people were reading uh, other writings and finding them interesting. And so a, a bishop says, hey, look, you know, these other writings contain heretical ideas. You really should uh, get rid of them. And so that's what was going on in, in the third and fourth centuries was uh, an attempt to distinguish more clearly what had biblical authority and what really didn't. But to infer from that that it was like anarchy, biblical anarchy, nobody really knew what was in the Bible or not, or that these other Gospels were just as old as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that really distorts the picture. Um, Another guest on the program one time said, look, if you look at the codices, that is, these these books— that were by and large invented by Christians in order to um, easily transport their scriptures and to and to use them. If you look at these ancient codices, especially those that were compiled were comprised of one or more of the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you will find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll find That's Matthew. Correct. You'll find Matthew, Mark. You'll find Luke and John. You'll find all sorts of combinations together. You don't find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Thomas, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Judas there. And he said, "There you go. The church is already distinguishing." in the books that it has bound together, uh, what they consider to be reliable sources on the life of Jesus. That's a very good point, and most of these uh, uh, codices, the very earliest ones, are 3rd century, 3rd century and 4th century, and that's correct. We can go even earlier. Uh, let's go into the 2nd century again. Uh, you have Papias, for example. His writings survive only as quotations. Papias wrote, we think, around 110, maybe 115 A.D. So he's at the beginning of the second century. Now, he's very interested in talking about apostolic tradition. He wants to talk about the apostles and eyewitnesses, and he mentions that he himself knew people who had firsthand acquaintance with the apostles. So that's very early, very important testimony. Papias is talking about... Uh, his life in the 70s and 80s of the first century. Now as an old man, he's telling us these stories at the beginning of the second century. Now he knows of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. 
Um, he mentions Matthew, Mark, and John specifically by name. He must have known Luke because he talks about Acts explicitly, the second volume of the Luke-Acts uh, work. And so he knows of these Gospels, talks about them because he can link them to apostolic figures. He doesn't know about a Gospel of Thomas. If the Gospel of Thomas had been composed in the first century, as Elaine Pagels thinks, as Stephen Patterson thinks, and a few other scholars have, have tried to argue, if the Gospel of Thomas actually had some kind of tradition of being connected to the Apostle Thomas, as some of these scholars in fact argue, then how come Papias doesn't know about it? That would be right up his alley. That would be a point he wants to make. He talks about Mark because it's linked to Peter. He talks about... Uh, uh, Matthew, of course, because it's linked to the Apostle Matthew. He talks about John because he thinks it's to be linked to the Apostle John. So this is of great interest to Papias, but he's never heard of Thomas. He hasn't heard of a Gospel of Thomas. He hasn't heard of a Gospel uh, of Peter. He hasn't heard of a secret Gospel of Mark. He hasn't heard of a Gospel of Philip, a Gospel of Mary, or any of these other writings. I argue that he hasn't heard of them because they haven't been written yet. They get written in the second century after his time. If you go a little further to Justin Martyr, this is very interesting. Justin Martyr, around the year 150, harmonizes the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he doesn't harmonize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Thomas. That's because he hasn't heard of it. So he harmonizes the three synoptics. His disciple is Tatian. Tatian harmonizes the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But he doesn't harmonize Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Thomas, or some of these others. Why? They don't exist yet. He hasn't heard of them. And then we found a fragment in the desert of Egypt. It's in the British Museum. It's the Edgerton Papyrus. And it's a harmonization of, again, synoptic gospel material and John. But you don't find Thomas in it. And it's dated to about somewhere 150, 160, somewhere in there. And then along comes Irenaeus in France. And he's writing in the 180s, so there he is way out west in the Mediterranean world. And he knows of only four Gospels that have any authority at all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then he criticizes other Gospels as he describes them that were lately produced. Other Gospels that very recently have come into existence that some heretics read. And then that's when he mentions the Gospel of Judas and a few others. By the way, he doesn't know of the Gospel of Thomas, even so. And in my view, it's because the Gospel of Thomas is being written about that same time in the 180s. So you just look at our, our second century witnesses, people that actually talk about Gospels and know about Gospels, uh, and they know of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't know of, until you get toward the end of the second century, they don't know of other ones uh, until somebody like Irenaeus comes along. So the, this evidence, in combination with the codices that are assembled, the ancient books in the 3rd and 4th centuries, I think it gives us a clear picture. Uh, the four Gospels that are in the New Testament are the only ones known to be early, the only ones known to be connected to eyewitnesses and apostolic authorities. The other ones simply came along much later and don't have a very credible connection to authority and are obviously at variance with what the earlier Gospels, the earlier Apostolic Gospels, had to say in the way they portrayed Jesus. So I, I don't think you have to be a nuclear scientist to figure this out. 
the early church rightly and instinctively recognized the older material and tended to be skeptical of the more recent stuff. That didn't mean that no Christian found it interesting, that nobody would read these later Gospels. About 10 seconds. Well, we'll take a break. Dr. Craig Gevins is our guest. We're talking about how modern Bible scholars distort the Gospels, and today in the first part of our three-part weekly series with him, the best sources for understanding the real historical Jesus. When we come back, the dates of the canonical Gospels. Stay tuned. All right, so you missed your congregation's budget deadline, or your congregation turned down your request to join the Issues Etc. 300. Well, there's still a way to add your church to the Issues Etc. 300. Now, anyone who pledges $1,000 to Issues Etc. in the next year will add their congregation to the Issues Etc. 300. We'll promote your church on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Pledge $1,000 to Issues Etc., and we'll publicize your congregation to the world. Here's an easy way for you to publicize Issues Etc. at your church. Go to the Promote page of our website, issuesetc.org, and you'll find a short paragraph to include in your weekly church bulletin. Help inform your fellow parishioners about Issues Etc. issuesetc.org. Click Promote and copy and paste the text for your church secretary or pastor to include each week in the Sunday Bulletin. We update this paragraph weekly. Go to the Promote page of our website, issuesetc.org. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. One Mother's Story of God's Gifts This is a special commentary from the Susan B. Anthony List, named for the suffragette who was proudly pro-life. Jody Brock says people often ask her how she manages to stay sane in her busy household of nine. Her answer is always the same. It's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. Now imagine their reaction when discovering that the majority of Jody's seven children cope with neurological disorders. All three of her sons have autism. Despite people's response, Jody believes that God has called her to a ministry with her disabled children and recognizes each of them as gifts from Him. What a beautiful reminder of the preciousness of life. This is Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List, inviting you to join us in our battle for life. For more, go online to sba-list.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking the best sources for understanding the historical Jesus. Modern biblical scholarship says the best sources may be outside the canon of Scripture, at least what they consider to be the canon of Scripture nowadays. They would say we need to look outside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We need to look to the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, or to other long-hidden or secret Gospels. Well, it doesn't sound like, at least in terms of their pedigree, these other Gospels are very reliable. Dr. Evans, let's talk about the dates of the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know that there is some debate here, but uh, um, what's the best scholarship we have on the earliest dates for these four Gospels? Well, that's uh, that's a good question, and and in this case, we actually have some pretty good agreement among scholars, uh, whatever their theological orientation or however skeptical or critical or, or, or whatever they happen to be. 
and that is just about everybody agrees that the Gospels range in date from the 60s, late 60s perhaps, uh, of the first century to no later than, than the mid-90s. What usually, what you'll hear scholars say is they'll say, oh, Ma- uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are probably in that 65 to 80 range, and John is probably around 90 to 95 A.D. And so there'll be a little bit of disagreement of a few years this direction or that direction, but most agree that uh, all four of the New Testament Gospels were written uh, in the second half of the first century. Now, how do they know that? It's because of a couple of things. It's what we call verisimilitude, that is a a realistic agreement a parallel to the way things were at that time. And so uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe the first century uh, Israel. They describe Jewish customs, real places, real events, uh, real cities. I mean, you can hold the Gospels in your hand and take a shovel and, and you know where to dig. And that is, uh, simplistically, that's the way it is with archaeologists. They find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reliable guides to first century Israel. Uh, that's not true for the Gospel of Thomas and some of these other writings. So that encourages us to see them as first century. And also we can see a certain correspondence with historical events, the the focus on the destruction of Jerusalem. And that gives us the idea that, you know, the, uh, Matthew and Mark probably were written just before it was destroyed. Uh, you have the date of Paul's life in the book of Acts. He's still alive at the end of Acts. Does that help us date that writing as well? And so there are events like that uh, that uh, in history that line up with the Gospels and help us date them. Okay, um, so we have these more reliable dates, early dates for the canonical Gospels, um, and you made the point before that compare comparison-wise, we're talking about much later for these extra-canonical Gospels. you got guys like John Dominic Crisson who will say Gospel of Thomas might have been as early as 50 A.D. I know. I know he says that. Uh, there, there's another scholar, April DeConnick, uh, in Texas, who argues that Thomas is written in four stages. By the way, so does Crossan. He doesn't. Uh, uh, he's not quite as uh, detailed as, as April DeConnick. But these scholars do the same thing, and I call it fudging. You've got a document. The only documents of Thomas that, that exist the whole thing in the Coptic language, and then three portions of it in Greek. And so everything that we have clearly is late. Uh, Half of the New Testament books alluded to or quoted. Other indications of lateness, acquaintance with late second century ideas in in Syria, for example. So everything about Thomas that we have says, hey, this thing is late, late second century. So what scholars do is imagine earlier editions. They don't exist. There's no evidence that they ever existed, but they imagine uh, early editions and how they may have looked, and then they can say, see, now I can plausibly uh, date this hypothetical version into the 50s, 60s, or 70s of the first century. Uh, That's just cheating, in my view. That's taking evidence and saying, I don't like the evidence. Let me imagine how it might look differently. Aha, now I can make it earlier. And that's, that's fudging, and I don't think that's legitimate. Is it also cheating, and now this is an older um, hypothesis than, uh, than have been put forward by uh, Elaine Pagels, Croissant, others like that, uh, but this one having to do with a, 
a purely hypothetical source itself. I mean, no text whatsoever. I'm thinking here about the old Q source for the Gospels, at least the the, the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, the, here's the thing. On the Q source, my view is that there's two sides to this. One side is a good side, and one side of is, is a very dubious side. And that is, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are clearly related to one another. And uh, just about all Gospel scholars agree on that. And so when you look at them, you realize Matthew and Luke have about 270 verses in common, teaching of Jesus in common, that you don't find in Mark. So that's what Q is. It's this material that Matthew and Luke share, teaching of Jesus. You don't find it in Mark. And so that's what scholars talk about. Now, what's good about that, as Richard Bauckham and James Dunn and others have argued, this Q material, this is a big chunk of Jesus' teaching that was treasured and passed on by the early church. And so it's early material. So that's not wrong. That, I think, is a good side to the Q part. The bad part, in my view, the dubious part, is to talk about Q as if it represents a distinctive church, a distinctive community, and then employ the argument from silence because Q doesn't talk about the Passion Week, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. Well, the Q Christians must not have been interested in that. And that's when this Q talk goes way off the rails, in my view, and uh, misunderstands the nature of this material. Q is simply Jesus' teaching. It's his pre-Easter teaching, which is why it doesn't talk about Passion Week. And Matthew and Luke have, I think Mark has a little bit of it, but Matthew and Luke uh, uh, express it much more fully in their longer Gospels. Let's talk about some of the other alleged uh, Gospels. We talked about Thomas a little bit, and you mentioned Judas, but let's get into some that people may not have heard about. Gospel of Peter. Yeah, the Gospel of Peter, you know, we we know that it really existed at one time because uh, one of the bishops uh, at the end of the second century, beginning of the third century, a bishop Serapion, he refers to it, and he doesn't like it, and he tells his churches under his charge to quit reading it. And so, but unfortunately, he doesn't quote it. Well, then we found in a in a coffin dating from the seventh or eighth century, a monk is found in this wooden coffin in Egypt, and there's a little book in, in the coffin with him. And inside this book is an, is an excerpt, just a quotation, a very lengthy quotation, the equivalent of maybe two chapters or so, of a gospel. And it begins with Pilate washing his hands, Jesus then being roughly treated, abused, Jesus is crucified, then there's a remarkable resurrection experience, the stone rolls aside, uh, Jewish elders, along with, with Roman troops, are guarding the tomb. They, they are frightened. Two tall angels go into the tomb and escort out Jesus. His head reaches the very clouds, and his cross comes out of the tomb following him. Well, we don't know what this work is. Some think it is the long-lost gospel of Peter. Well, maybe it is. But the fantastic elements in it, the historical blunders that are in it as well, all suggest that this writing is probably no earlier than the middle of the second century and could well be late second century as well, whether it's the Gospel of Peter or not. But why some people think that this could be an early account, maybe even the earliest account on which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are based, 
I just find that uh, unbelievable. I don't find that persuasive in the least. What is the uh, Egerton Gospel? I've never heard of it. Well, the the uh, Egerton Papyrus, it's named after the person actually who purchased it and donated it. Uh, and so there are, there are two, the Edgerton Papyrus number 1 and Edgerton Papyrus number 2. The first one is just uh, uh, some biblical material. But the second one is this, uh, it's just a few stories. It's in very bad shape. It's fragmentary. And so we have uh, three or four stories that appear to be a mixture of synoptic gospel material and the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John. And so I think what it is is a fragment of a harmony, something similar to what Justin Martyr was producing at about the same time in the middle of the second century. I don't think it's some early uh, first century source, as some people think. Rather, it's a second century uh, harmony. It strikes me just with only about 30 seconds here that uh, one of the big differences between these claimed Gospels and the canonical Gospels is the... uh, the piles, literally the piles of manuscript evidence here. It sounds as though you got mountains on one side and molehills on the other. Is that right? That's About a very 30 good seconds. Point. Yeah, very good point. The 27 books of the New Testament, or the four Gospels, are extremely well preserved and represented by hundreds of early ones, thousands on into the Middle Ages. When we come back from this break, Dr. Craig Evans stays with us for another 10 minutes. We're going to conclude this first part of our three-part weekly series with him on how modern scholarship distorts the Gospels. Today we're talking about the best sources for understanding the real historical Jesus. Dr. Craig Evans is professor of New Testament and director of the graduate program at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, Canada. He's author of the book Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels. You can purchase Fabricating Jesus at our website, issuesetc.org. Click On Demand and look for Fabricating Jesus by our guest, Dr. Craig Evans. When we come back, 10 more minutes with him, we'll talk about the Gospel of Mary. Now, these things become more and more obscure as we go on, but we will return to those ones that have been troubling people, at least of late, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, and try to put them to bed as less-than-reliable sources if you're looking for the real Jesus. We'll talk about their content after this. Stay tuned. Here's what Pastor Bill Swirla had to say on a recent Issues Etc. broadcast about the new Lutheran Study Bible. What we've had in the past is kind of a Lutheran revision of an NIV Study Bible, so there's always a certain yes-but character to it. This is done by Lutheran theologians and Lutheran exegetes, and I think it's something that we can use confidently in our Bible studies and home devotions and other places. You can purchase the new Lutheran Study Bible online. Just look for the cover at our homepage, issuesetc.org. Here's a great resource for Sunday school teachers. Every Tuesday, we interview Deaconess Pam Nielsen of Concordia Publishing House about the upcoming Growing in Christ Sunday School lesson. You'll find these interviews under the on-demand page of our website, issuesetc.org. Listen to a 20-minute interview with Pam Nielsen, and you'll be prepared to teach Sunday school this weekend. Issuesetc.org. Click On Demand and look for Teaching a Sunday School Lesson with Deaconess Pam Nielsen. Issues Etc. online at issuesetc.org. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc.
noted author and history professor Dr. Paul Meyer on the uniqueness of Issues Etc. I'm delighted not only to listen to Issues Etc., but also to have the privilege of being on the program from time to time. Issues is never afraid to take a stand on the thorny, vexing issues that clutter our daily horizons. And it does so in the name of a solidly based Christianity that, that doesn't flirt with fads or fantasies. Whereas some Christian programs sidestep ethical and doctrinal questions in our day, issues take some head-on in a fearless, responsible, thoughtful manner. Both head and heart are involved when issues applies Holy Scripture. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by making a tax-deductible gift today. Donate online at issuesetc.org, or you can donate by check. Lutheran Public Radio, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for your support. The way to imagine early Christianity is that there were a large number of groups who were debating a large number of theological issues, and one of these groups ended up being victorious. This group that ended up becoming victorious is the group that wrote the creeds that we still have today, and they're the ones that decided which books would be included in the New Testament. So naturally, the books in the New Testament would coincide fairly closely with the views uh, adopted in these creeds. That's Bart Ehrman. He's author of Misquoting Jesus, one of the scholars who alleges that we really should be looking outside of the canonical Gospels and books to find a more reliable view of the historical Jesus. We're talking about the best sources for understanding the real Jesus. Dr. Craig Evans is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Our call-in number for the next 10 minutes, one 877 you can email us, talkback at issuesetc.org, or if you're following us at Twitter, at issuesetc, at issuesetc. Tell us a little bit about the Gospel of Mary. Well, the Gospel of Mary was uh, composed somewhere between 120 and 140 A.D., maybe even a little bit later. There's not a lot of debate over its date. Uh, the, what creates a lot of debate is uh, where it refers to Jesus loving Mary. And, of course, that becomes uh, titillating in some circles. It becomes the uh, backbone for the Dan Brown, Michael Bajan stuff of late, that Jesus uh, perhaps was married to Mary Magdalene, perhaps uh, fathered a child or two by her. But the problem with that is is that isn't really what the Gospel of Mary is talking about. When it says that Jesus uh, loved Mary, it's the same as Jesus loved all of his disciples. And so, uh, and in fact, it even some think it says he, he Jesus kissed her or something like that. The uh, text has a hole in it, and we're not entirely sure. But so what? Judas Iscariot kissed Jesus. That was the custom of the time. And so it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's very similar to what we do today when we shake hands or pat somebody on the shoulder. It's just an affectionate greeting. It has nothing to do with romance. But what the Gospel of Mary has to do with is trying to show that Mary's teaching, and this is, of course, a fictional Mary. It isn't the real Mary Magdalene who lived 100 years earlier, but it's a fictional character who supposedly has great insights. It just happens to be insights that are Gnostic. 
And so uh, this is what the Gospel of Mary is. This is what other Gnostic writings from the 2nd and 3rd centuries do. And so to come up with authority for their strange teaching, teaching that Jesus never taught, teaching that the genuine 1st century apostles never taught, you create a fictional character and you read back into time uh, a story. And so what we have is some strange teaching placed on the mouth of Mary. And, of course, Mary should be listened to. She should be respected because, after all, Jesus loved her just the way he loved his other disciples. And so it's a way of magnifying Mary's authority and giving credit to this bizarre and strange teaching. But, of course, modern scholars recognize it for what it is. It's just a second-century fiction, and it forms no basis whatsoever for this fantasy that Jesus had this love life, this romance, and perhaps had children that uh, managed to make their way to France or something like that. That has, that's just historical nonsense. There's no truth to it whatsoever. Uh, you've kind of led us nicely back to uh, Thomas and Judas, the Gospels, these these two Gospels that have caused so much flap in the press uh, in the last several years, especially as books have been written about them, or they've been published in their entirety in English. And uh, one of the th- most compelling arguments against their reliability does have to do with their theological content, not only their historical content, but their theological content, is the Jesus that we meet in the Gospel of Thomas or of Judas does he bear a resemblance uh, beyond kind of the name to the Jesus we meet in the four canonical Gospels? Well, that, of course not. And, that, that's, and that's where I would take exception with what Bart Ehrman uh, was saying in the quotation, that, uh, the, uh, the little take that you played a few minutes ago. Uh, the, the thing is, I would, like to, I would like him to present us with some first-century sources that got left out of the canon of the New Testament. That's my challenge to him. I've read his books, and the earliest materials that he talks about are second century, and some of the things he talks about is third century. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to see something that credibly dates to, to the 50s, 60s, or 70s that gives us a Jesus that's really different. I'd like to see, uh, you know, a letter that uh, was written by some figure in the church uh, in the middle of the first century that's comparable, say, to Paul's letters, that gives us a different theology, a different Christianity. This stuff is fiction. It doesn't exist. You don't get different Christianities until you get into the second century. If you want diversity, You've got it in the New Testament. The epistle of James is not the same as Paul's letters. Hebrews is not the same as Paul's letters. The four Gospels are not identical to one another. So there is a certain amount of diversity that's within and underneath the Christian umbrella in the first century. The stuff we're talking about that's really aberrant and strange is second century. So the idea that there were all these different Christian groups coexisting side by side in the first century is misleading. You don't get these other groups that are truly different, truly uh, with uh, different views of Jesus until you get into the second century. And the reason I, I don't have much respect for these later views, they don't agree with the realities that we know existed in the first century. And then we can go to archaeology, we can go to... Uh, other early historical sources and make comparisons, and the writings of the New Testament compare well with with these early sources. The writings produced by the Gnostics in the second century and later 
they don't they don't reflect the first century whatsoever. So you know, I, I really too take strong exception to some of this popular stuff that's out and about in the press these days, even coming from scholars, in my view, who ought to know better, like Professor Ehrman who make it sound like you had this wildly dis- disparate types of Christianity all existing in the first century. There isn't any evidence for that. With only about 30 seconds, how reliable are these best sources for understanding the real Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They're very reliable. They've been put to the test, critically scrutinized for centuries, and archaeological work has gone a long way to show that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are talking about real people, real events, real places, and not fantasy and not fiction. Dr. Evans, next Thursday we're going to continue our series with you on how modern scholars distort the Gospels with a conversation about the world in which Jesus lived. A very brief preview, about 20 seconds. Well, you know, that's a very important question, because when you get past sources, the question is as well, what was the world Jesus lived in, and how should we assess him? What was he like? Who was Jesus? And so scholars have various views on that. That's a very important topic, too. Dr. Craig Evans is professor of New Testament and director of the graduate program at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, Canada. He's author of the book Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels. Thank you very much for being our guest. Look forward to next week's conversation. So do I. Look forward to it. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll talk to Terry Mattingly of Scripps Howard News Service about evangelical reaction to President Obama's back-to-school address. He was talking to the kids this week. We'll find out what Terry Mattingly found out about evangelical reaction. Not all what you're hearing about on uh, conservative talk radio. We'll also play Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week tomorrow. That's Friday on Issues Etc. Even if you look at these documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Apart from their spiritual import, apart from their theological content, just evaluate the pedigree of these texts. You walk away stunned. I don't think that's too strong a word. Stunned at the at the their preservation, at the unanimity between the all the thousands of copies that are there. Yes, there are some variants, but the unanimity outweighs the variants. And how they agree with one another. And then you set them in the context of the greater New Testament canon, and you find among these four witnesses no real disagreement on who Jesus is. And the four together agree with the rest of the New Testament, all of the apostles in their writings, other writings, including St. Paul. It is remarkable. We're talking about profoundly ancient documents that are still with us today that tell us by their own by their own statements, they tell us of a Jesus who is even more remarkable. A Jesus who is both God and man, that's remarkable. A Jesus who sent from his Father to take on human flesh, did so to bear the sins of the world. And, you know, you can find variants between these Gospels, but they all agree on that one thing. This Jesus hung upon a cross for the sins of the world. He shed his blood there. He died. And after three days, he rose again from the dead and was seen by his disciples. 
and the message that he gave his disciples to bear into the world, the reason that they went on to write those Gospels, the reason they went on to write those epistles, to gather together the New Testament, not only them, but all of the Christians after them, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, in the crucified and risen Savior's name, to all the ends of the earth. I'm Todd Wilkin. Talk with you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Lutheran Public Radio, P.O. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org Issues Etc. is a production of LPR Lutheran Public Radio.